So a massive hello to Jennifer Thornton, joining us from Dallas in Texas, which is super exciting, from the big USA, on our podcast, Humans at Work. And I'm so looking forward to speaking with Jennifer tonight and getting some wisdom and some insight into the truly international flavour that humans and work can actually have. So what we might do, Jennifer, just to kick off, can you just share with us what you're doing at the moment and what kind of clients you're working with? Yeah. So thank you for having me. It's such a joy to be here with you tonight. Um, So what we do here at 304 Coaching is we really focus on creating talent strategies for organizations. And early in my career and throughout my career, you know, just kind of being a student of success and failure and trying to pick all that apart and what causes it and what creates it. um, You know, I was realizing that most people create business strategies, but there's no talent strategy that connects with it. And so we really help organizations think about, okay, what do you need to accomplish in your business? And then how do you think about your talent and making sure your talent is able to deliver those expectations? So we do that anywhere from, you know, org design and assessments, pre-employment assessments to leadership academies, coaching, um, cultural um, projects, all types of things, but it's really all about talent strategies. Mm, Beautiful. And out of all of that, what is your favorite pieces of work to do? My gosh, it's like picking your favorite child. (laughs) Um, So I think my favorite thing to do is a leadership academies um, because they're over a long, um, you know, anywhere from seven to 12 months. And so we were able to really um, dive in and we create, um, you know, this environment where each person is able to learn a little bit and apply it and that you just see them build their skills over time. And I think it's just so exciting to see people grow and start to make a difference and build their confidence and their leadership skills. Yeah, beautiful. That's fantastic. And can you just tell us what are some of the kind of clients that you're, you you are working with on a day-to-day basis, Jennifer? Oh my gosh, I get such great clients and I have, you know, a lot of smaller businesses um, that um, we where we are really focused on building culture. So um, anywhere from transportations to restaurants, um, my background is in retail. So um, I have a lot of retail clients, some really amazing ones like Talbot's, the Container Store, Locker say. Um, so some really interesting um, retailers and then um, some communication type companies like Avaya and Harris com- Computers. Mm, lovely. That's awesome. And with the Leadership um, Academy that you're talking about and your work, I guess, in the leadership space, I'm interested in what you're seeing as the up and coming necessary skills for leaders to be developing, um, particularly in the light of the future of work and organizations developing. What are you thinking that we need from a leadership point of view? You know, I think we need um, to really understand one of the things that I'm really passionate about educating people on is really how does the neuroscience of the mind work? And so I think a lot of our 20th century leadership skills um, that say, you know, don't let people see you sweat, know all the answers, make sure that you're, you know, telling people what to do, hold people accountable and, you know, be strong, all that type of stuff and that language that we've kind of grown up with that actually creates fear in the mind. And when we create fear in our teams and they are using their primitive brain, their prefrontal 
prefrontal cortex closes down. And that's where all the good stuff happens. That's where the new ideas, innovation, and collaboration, that's where you need things to be happening. And so I think as we're moving through and the world is adapting and changing, we have to really start to get honest about the neuroscience of the mind, how the chemicals work, how our language creates a chemical reaction in someone else. And how do you know that and manage that so that um, you're, you're getting the most out of your team and you're not pushing anyone into a fear state. Mm. And are you saying that that's the kind of thing that leaders are really happy to be learning about and interested in? Yeah, I think that it's um, it kind of pulls back the curtains. I think that they, you know, will see their employees um, freeze up, or um, they'll say, well, you know, they're not just they're just not making decisions on their own. I hear that all the time. I'll come in and I'm like, what you know, what skills do you want your teams to grow in to get you know to think about your business needs? And they're like, they just don't make decisions on their own. Mm. And what I then I start you know kind of peeling back the layers and asking questions. And what I find is the leaders are so um, wrapped up in their own idea of what right is and their own addiction to do it my way that people aren't making decisions because of how they've been um, spoken to or how um, they view the culture. And so it's not that they don't want to, it's not that they don't or they can't, it's that because of the the environment, they're in fear to make decisions. And so they're just waiting to be told what to do because of how the work environment works. Yeah. And then you get that cycle of dependence happening because if they're waiting to be told what to do, then the leader comes in and tells them what to do. (laughs) Then they're actually not going away and thinking for themselves in the first place. So therein lies, you know, the creation of organizational cultures that aren't very effective. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting space, I think. And what about in the area of just human skills more generally, I guess, like not so specific as leadership, but across the business more generally? And particularly, um, I guess, particularly in the light of COVID and people, you know, working more from home and things like that, what are the skills that you're finding that businesses really need to focus on now in their people? So I think that, you know, in the light of COVID, I think we all um, obviously have been working from home more than we used to. Um, So that's something that some skills around that. But I think for individuals who's never led from afar, you know, some businesses, the leaders do lead from afar and it's quite natural for them. But for individuals who haven't led from afar, that um, is a skill that they're going to have to work on. I think that, um, you know, we're going to have a blended approach to our work environments. You know, I see, I know that some companies will probably go back and when it's the time is right and be at, you know, a hundred percent, you know, on campus. But I really think that this has opened up a lot of minds that say, Oh, our work can be done, you know, in a, an either remote or a blended re- approach um, and kind of getting used to that. I think the other thing for leaders is they're going to have to get used to, um, how do you, how do you pull people accountable to results and not hours in the seat? Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? That's a very big one because there's still a lot of people that associate hours with productivity and to be basically trying to encourage people to pull that apart and start looking at outcomes, which makes a lot of sense, but the mechanism by, of how you actually do that is the tricky part, I think. 
It is. And, you know, I think that, you know, if you are an employee that is incredibly efficient and you can do your job and, you know, four hours less than your counterparts, why should you sit in front of a computer and twiddle your thumbs for four hours? Yeah. You know, um, but, and we don't reward people um, necessarily for efficiency um, because we're too busy awarding them for hours and seats. And what if we rewarded people for efficiency and results? And if we were rewarding them for efficiency and results, what else would they take into their life? You know, what else would they say, oh, I was able to get all of this done, but I want to go help this cross-functional business partner because I want to learn about their department. So I'm going to sign up and, and help them with this project over here. But because we don't reward people that way, they kind of feel like, well, I just kind of have to sit here or they don't move or they're not as efficient as they really could be because they know they have to be there for so many hours. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the mindset that the individuals have in the first place, which obviously is what creates the culture. So I don't know about where you're from, but in Australia, there's really quite considerably high levels of disengagement in workplaces. So the average kind of engagement score in Australia is under 30% engagement. So you've got 70% of people who are either not wanting to be at work or they're not wanting to be at that particular workplace, or they're not wanting to be doing that job particularly. And I often wonder in the, in those sort of environments how companies produce anything. <laughs> but what, what's it like in the US as far as, you know, engagement and those kind of things? Yeah, if you look at engagement surveys, um, the US and Australia are very similar um, in their numbers. Um, you know, you, you see those numbers even drop more in Asia, Latin America, um, those types of places. I think Europe and Canada may have some of the highest ones, but, you know, we see the same issues. And I think a lot of it is um, our our fast pace. We don't stop and slow down and um, reward people for their work. We don't stop and um, have conversations. You know, I think that conversation is what creates engagement because it's what creates connections. And if we would slow down and just say, hey, you know, here's what's going on, you know, um, we're, you know, selling this widget and our, you know, 20 to 30 year old um, aren't, aren't buying it the way they used to. I wonder why. And sit around and talk about why could that be, or what are we missing? And, but, you know, sitting down and having those conversations, we're not doing that and learning mm -hmm. about what we could do to drive our business. Instead, we're yelling at someone saying, you need to get out there and sell more. And, you know, you just didn't make the right marketing decision or whatever that, you know, failure that person believes someone had. So instead of just saying, hey, this is a problem, let's have a good conversation and get creative about it. It's, you're in trouble. Why, and, why aren't we having those conversations? Because it seems like such a no-brainer when you talk about it like that. So why is it not being done? You know, I think that a lot of people don't know to have them. And I think that when they were in those seats, no one had them with them. And it's that 20th century leadership of do what I tell you to do because I'm the boss and, or that 20th century leadership, I'm the boss, I'm right, you do what I tell you to do. And I think that when we as leaders are in fear, um, because we're worried about our you know, business performance, we move into fear just like our teams do. And so when, when we are in fear, we're not creative. Mm -hmm. We're 
you know, pushing in that, just fix it, you know, blaming it on someone else. And that, you know, that angst that we get when we go into fear. And I think that leaders move into fear and when they move into fear, they're not having great conversations. Yeah. I think that's so true. And when you think about it, the opposite of motivating from fear is motivating from love. And there's an awful lot of love that is missing in an awful lot of organizations. That's all I can say, Um, which is so unfortunate when you think of the amount of time in our lives we all spend in the workplace, you know, you're doing 30, 40, 50, 60 hour weeks and committing the largest percentage of your life to being in the workplace. And it's somewhere that's not fabulous. I know. And, you know, it's so, uh, it's so hard to think about someone, you know, getting up every day and working so hard and at the end of the day, not being happy. And that's heartbreaking. And, you know, people ask, you know, why do I do what I do? And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, I help, you know, companies create their business results. And that's true. But really why I do what I do is I want better communities and to have a better community Someone has to go to work. They have to be able to provide for their family. So there's shelter and food and education opportunities, all that type of stuff. But if you're, if you're a child and your parents come home from work and they have been just beaten on and they don't like their job and they sit down to dinner, they're not as connected to their children and they're not having great conversations with their children because they're so worried about, oh, I got to go back to work as soon as they go to sleep, or I can't believe I messed up at work today. And so their children then don't get that great connection. And I really think we can build better communities if our workforce went home happier and more confident and prouder of the job they do, then they would go home and treat anyone in their home or their friends, anyone they're exposed to better Then those people are going to go out and treat someone better. And I, I just don't think that the workforce understands their ripple effect of how yeah. they lead. They don't, they don't understand the level of responsibility they have either, particularly for people's mental health. I think that I don't know what, what it's like as far as legislation and things in the U S but I know in Australia, I suspect it's going to be more and more like this where there's more direct liability that you're going to be able to demonstrate based on things like really negative organisational cultures causing mental health injuries in people. And I think that's just a disaster waiting to happen, to be honest, when it starts going kind of in that direction. But but when we're talking about you know, it's a polite way to talk at a, talk about it when you're talking about engagement statistics. But when you're talking about the fact that there's depression, there's anxiety, there's all of these other different diagnoses that people are struggling with, and there, there, it's absolutely a fact that a workplace can either make that more bearable and more tolerable and better, or it can make it worse. <laughs> um, what do you see in that regard? Yeah. I mean, I think it's great that Australia is maybe looking at some of those things. I mean, obviously any new legislation, it's, um, you know, you have to think about what's, what's, what are we trying to solve and then what are our unintended consequences, right? Um, I'm not seeing that here in the U.S. Um, I think that that's a missed opportunity. Um, you know, U.S. does not have the, um, the federal legislations for um, health care or time off of work or any of those types of things that a lot of countries do have. Um, it's just not been the culture here and, and not anything that's been able to pass. Now, because of the U.S., every state 
can have their own labor laws so they can um, top off, you know, the federal standard. And Mm. so many states like California or New York or Washington or Oregon state, a lot of them do have um, additional labor laws that do protect the physical and mental health of employees. Yeah, I think I, yeah, it's it's the only way to go. But I honestly think that although legislation plays a role at the end of the day, it, to me, it comes down to the skills that are being trained in the workplace because you can either help people learn. And this is, I guess, this is, this is something that's interesting. Um, If you've ever seen that research that Google have done on high performing teams, I don't know if you've seen that piece of research, but they talk about five things that are important. And the most important thing is psychological safety. And I think that conversation around psychological safety, is that being had much in US workplaces? You know, it's starting to, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think that psychological safety, I'm glad that that word is kind of floating out there. I think it really, you know, we you know, there was a point where we talked a lot about emotional intelligence and I think psychological safety is, it takes it to a whole new level. And, um, when you think about psychological safety, again, it goes back to the brain science. Someone has to feel safe in their, um, minds and with their chemical reactions to actually feel, to actually create psychological safety. So if I'm going to work and I know that I'm going, if I take a risk and I fail, but I learn, I'm going to be celebrated. That feels very different than, oh gosh, I, you know, driving to work and knowing that you'll get in trouble for anything you do. That's just a little tiny bit off. Um, and it's our chemical reactions. You know, our primitive brain is there to keep us alive. And back in, you know, our early evolution, that was making sure we stayed in a tribe because we couldn't survive without our tribe. We couldn't provide food and housing and water, everything we needed. We couldn't do that without a tribe around us. Well, fast forward to today's world, our brain works the same way, but that's the workplace. If we're getting voted out of the workplace, then we may not be able to provide food and housing and all those things for our friend or for our family. Yeah. It, it comes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, doesn't it? At the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. It, Yeah, it does. And so as soon as you enter into a conversation, it's so easy to create fear and we don't even realize it. Um, As soon as we enter into a conversation, then um, we're choosing to create fear or collaboration and to create psychological safety, you have to get the fear out of the workplace. Yeah. And so, so how do you do that? How do you like, how do you change a workplace that's ridden by fear or in fact, a culture like if you if you look around us at the moment with COVID and everything like that, it's the entire the entire experience has been politics and healthcare by fear, basically. How do you change that in a society or an organization into something where people are motivated from love, not fear? Yeah, you know, it's a process. And I would love to say you go in and you flip a switch and it's all great, but it's a process. Um, it starts with the executives. It always starts with the highest level because they set the tone and they can have someone come in and write these beautiful values or way of work or cultural statements. But if they don't live them, then it doesn't matter. And so I think it's starting with the executives and really educating them and helping them see their own voice. And I had a conversation with a client the other day and they were, we were working with someone and we really wanted them to start um, being more responsive. And so this person made a decision and she responded really quickly, but it was the wrong priority response. 
And so she got in big trouble. This email came and she got in trouble. And so I, you know, paused, I went back and said, let's talk about what you were working on. Let's talk about how that email, she got in trouble for doing what she got in trouble for and helping people start to see how, when they are providing feedback and what they're doing. And so a lot of it's just awareness and being a student of your words, being a student of your action, um, you know, stopping before you, you say something and thinking about what do, what is the, what do I need them to hear? So how do I need to say that? Because what we needed to say to this individual is we appreciate your responsiveness, but the priorities were off. So we see you growing, but here's how we need to grow more. Instead, she got in trouble. Mm. It's, it's the old positive, um, positive reinforcement or, or negative punishment thing, isn't it? As far as do more of what you want to see or try to eliminate what you don't want to see. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so often we actually make people feel bad for what we want, you know, going back to that question of people saying, why can't people make their own decisions? Well, if you want them to make their own decisions, you have to get okay with them making a decision different than yours. Yeah, that's exactly right. And at the end of the day, that comes down to the emotional maturity of the leader and how threatened they're feeling by people around them. Because if they're, if they're operating from a place of fear to begin with, then you don't have much hope. (laughs) No, you don't. And, you know, they have to um, get out of it. They also have to come um, to terms. Sometimes they're, they're actually physically addicted to their own um, ideas and them being right. And when we're right, we get a dopamine hit and that's pretty exciting, right? Who doesn't want to get dopamine hit. And if you look at someone who's addicted to sugar or a substance and they, and then someone who maybe is addicted to being right, you, their brains fire off the exact same way. Yeah. What we know is if you're addicted to sugar, you want a little, but to get that same high, the next time you need a little bit more. So being addicted to your own ideas in your own right, that happens a ton in executives. And then when I start to see those tendencies, I know we've got, we got bigger issues. And also if you add that with narcissism, which is pretty prevalent in a lot of execs, (laughs) then it's like, it's the winning combination. (laughs) It is. It is definitely the unfortunate winning combination, but I often talk to people and I, they'll say something like, you know, our CEO, I remember back in the day when he or she was, you know, they just were more collaborative and they, they listened better. And you just, the longer they I've worked for them, the less they, less they do that. And it's because they've gotten really addicted to their own ideas. And, you know, I've never thought of someone being addicted to their own ideas before. I totally get what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense. And it also explains, I think the people that you have in your life that do have a really strong need to be right. And there's no question that there's some people that have a stronger need to be right than others do. It's not, it's not kind of all equal. Yeah, Um, it is. Think about, think about workplaces in the future for me and with, you know, increasing uses of technology and AI and all kinds of interfaces that we haven't even imagined that are going to hit workplaces. What do you think is required with the human skills to be able to maximize what humans do best? Oh my gosh. What a great question. My crystal ball. Um, I think that in the future, we will have to, for organizations to perform, we will have to increase um, our conversations and the quality of our conversations. 
I think that we also will have to increase our ability to manage change. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was teaching leadership courses or um, part of the academies yesterday. And one of the uh, modules what we're on is, you know, choosing what competencies you need to develop in yourself during the program. And I was interesting about 80% of the people said um, change you know, I have to learn how to manage change in a different way. Mm. And it kind of hit me that, yeah, we do. And I think um, being more flexible, understanding change, being more nimble, um, those types of skills um, and not getting attached because how we did it yesterday is not going to work tomorrow. And that's, you know, more true today than it's ever been. And my gut says will be more true five years from now than it was, than it is today. And I think that's going to be the biggest deal is how do you manage change and how do you get really comfortable in change? Yeah. And I think it's going to be, you know, it's the, um, it's navigating the ambiguity even more so than managing the change, because I think that words like manage are going to become less and less relevant in future workplaces. And we'll, I think we're going to be seeing, a much higher need in skill sets like you're talking about with conversations and things from a leadership point of view rather than a management point of view because I think management is command and control language and that's what we need to be shifting away from in order to reinvent ourselves and be comfortable with ambiguity, et cetera. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it'll be really interesting and, and, you know, not even only ambiguity in the, how we do the work, but a lot of ambiguity and, um, just how we, um, where we do the work, you know, it could be more job sharing. It could be more blended, you know, on campus, off campus, um, getting okay with someone saying, you know, I'm going to take my family on a cross country RV trip for a month, but during the day I'll be working. Mm. And, you know, getting okay with that. Because I think people are also, especially because of COVID, I think we're all realizing, you know, time with our family and friends is precious. Yeah. So people also start to see some movements toward that, which is just beautiful. I would love to see us move more towards spending more time with the people we care about. And what about one of the big trends happening in Australian workplaces is a um, leaning in toward project teams and more team-based kind of environments rather than big organisations with thousands of employees. You're seeing people get together for a purpose or a reason or for a deliverable and then they um, kind of go away and then they might get together with a different team for the same thing. And I'm just interested in, is that happening in the US firstly? And if it is, what are some of the skills needed for people to be able to work that, that flexibly? So we're not seeing that as much. There are some big organizations that do that, um, like really large, like a, a Google type organization um, that do that project type um, work environment. But um, the U.S. still is pretty traditional um, and this is a job you're hired to do. So it's a job we want you to do. And I think that, you know, when you move towards projects, um, you really help people understand how your organization works. I mean, the institutional knowledge you build when people are working on multiple projects across multiple functions, that's invaluable. Um, and I think that's a really great gift for those who do that. Um, you know, but I hope that the U.S. starts to see that. I think what we are seeing more of is hiring um, contractors. Mm-hmm. And so bringing in contractors for projects and then them leaving. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, but what you're not building is institutional knowledge. Mm. 
That's right. And it's also a real challenge for the organisational culture as well because you've got the itinerant coming in and out rather than the staying for a while. So it does produce a few challenges in the culture area too. So, Jennifer, my my last question for you is if you could um, give some kind of advice or handy hints or tips for our listeners here at the Human at Work podcast to survive and not survive but thrive in 2020, what would that be? So to uh, survive in 2020, I think that um, what we need to do to, to get through the, the rest of this year is to really embrace and appreciate people for who they are and to get really comfortable with valuing what someone brings to the table and start to um, appreciate that value. It's probably different than us. It might be not what you thought it was going to be, Um, but everyone is showing up in a different way because of their own personal situations. And so really um, taking the time to to appreciate someone, who they are, what they are, and what they're bringing to the table, because I think that will create a better relationship going into 2021. Yeah, very, very wise advice. Thank you so much. And for people who are listening that want to find out exactly a bit more about what you're doing, where's the best place that they can go to find out more information on you? So you can go to our website at 304coaching.com and you can connect with me on LinkedIn and continue the conversation at Jen Thornton ACC. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it immensely. And thank you for getting up so early. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.